folks, welcome to PRT. My name is Josh Turner, also known as Wolf. PRT stands for Paranormal Round Table. And my co-host, he's not important, so I'm not even going to mention his name. That's Wolfman80. What? Paranormal Round Table? I thought this was pretty righteous time. No, dude. Yeah. Well, no, not anymore. Am I on the wrong show? It was until you showed up. It was pretty righteous time until you showed up and started messing with it. All right. All right, folks. He's here. Mushu. Mushu. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Okay. Lackluster introduction, (laughs) but uh, as you were saying. That's a lackluster introduction to a lackluster person. Hey, man. I do a lot. I have you know that I have luster. Okay. Anyway. anyway. Anyways, guys, we're, we're just messing around here. DosWolfman88 at gmail.com. DosWolfman88 at gmail.com. Send us your stories. Send us your crazy stories, your outlandish stories, UFOs, Bigfoot, whatever you want to whatever you want to throw out Love there. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. Ghosts, nothing's too weird, man. You know, just let me know. And I'll read it, and I'll be like, oof, I'm going to put that on the air. Just kidding. <laughs> I'll read it, and if it's, if it's show worthy, if not, if you just want to talk. I talk to people all the time about their experiences. Some people tell me stories and they don't, they're not really wanting me to tell them on the air, but I'll still listen. I try to make time because I just, and me personally, I like to hear crazy stories, spooky stories. It's just a passion of mine, listening to people's fear. No, I'm just kidding. That sounds like it over here. So anyways, folks, b- before we go any further, I wanted to give the email. Uh, um, no, you already give the email. It's prtpodcast. Is the, uh, prtpodcast.com is the website where you can find our merch store, our PayPal, our all our previous episodes. Um, we have a, a little section for artwork. We have a lot of stuff on there. We'd appreciate it if you check it out. Um, yeah. And I, okay. well, that's actually also, not what I was going to say. I was going to give the email again, but that's fine. Oh, well, I st- stood up for myself. All right, again. fine, Tony. I'll, you, okay. You want me to admit it, folks? Yes, I was wrong. I said email and I should have said the whatever, Tony. We're correct. leaving that in. I'm you're, not cutting it. You're correct. I know you will because you're a jerk. <laughs> you're correct. You're correct. All I right. made a mistake and I said email again. I was trying to cover it up and I lied, folks, and I'm sorry. I apologize. Mm. Tony was correct and he was trying to give you the uh, website. This center over here. Anyway. But there's also, if you need to find uh, a link to our, our website or our PayPal or our merch store, it's also in the link of the YouTube description. Um, we have them on every uh, episode, so it's not just you know anything recent coming out. We have Anthony's kept up with it and make sure they're on almost all of them. We'd appreciate it if you check it out. It means a lot to us. Yep. Also, uh, please please like our, our uh, Josh Turner. Uh, it's a fan page. It's on it's on Facebook. If you like, uh, can you, if you can go and like that. Um, I invited a lot of people to like it because I, I need uh, validation as a person. I'm just kidding, <laughs> folks. Seriously, I, I need to do that because we're promoting for the show. And then the Paranormal Roundtable page, where we need people to like that page too. Also, if you would join Paranormal Roundtable, the group. Now, the benefit to joining Paranormal Roundtable, the group, is very minimal. You're just there. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually pretty cool. If you join... Um, when the show airs, okay, we'll put the link on Paranormal Roundtable, the group on Facebook. And through that, you will put the comments on there and someone will pick a winner for a prize. And that will happen every week of every show will happen every show. This, this week will be David Weatherly. Obviously he's our guest tonight and we will have, we'll be giving away one of his autographed books. So, and I really enjoyed uh, the book uh, that we're going to be discussing tonight. It's really good. So, if you guys would uh, be so kind as to go and leave a comment on there, um, if you want one to stand out, Zane's going to be the judge this week. If you want one to stand out to him, then I would say, hey, 
you know, leave a comment and catch his eye with it. And, and there you go. Exactly. And uh, there's also the other groups that we uh, manage, Paranormal Lounge, Paranormal Encounters. We appreciate if you would join those too. Yeah. And uh, also we got uh, Michael Moran. He runs a really good group too that we're Cryptid all- Cryptid yeah, Squad. <laughs> well, it's, not, it's no longer the Cryptid Squad. He fixed that. It's Cryptid Squad. And then we got Lori Shivers from Cryptids and Paranormal Reality. Okay. Now, there's a couple of Dogman groups that I'm involved into. Uh, Bigfoot and Dogman Info Library. Um, that's a pretty good one. Dogman Werewolf Discussion. Um, there's a lot of them. I mean, I can't even name them all. There, there are so many groups that I'm in. The True Horror Stories of Texas. I like that one. Uh, you got Michigan Dogman Only, Canine Cryptids, Friends and Readers of Phantoms and Monsters. That's Lon Strickler. That's a pretty good one. So, yeah, just going down the list here, Dogman Believers Only. I like that group. It's all run by good people. Um, just just uh, like uh, go in and, and join those groups, and, and we can all share information and talk and, and uh, just be friends. So... With all that being said, we're going to get right to the show. Uh, we're going to interview David Weatherly. So, David, t- tell us a little bit about yourself to get started here. Well, sure. I got interested in strange things, so to speak, when I was a kid. And I uh, grew up in uh, the rural south. Uh, you know, this is – I was born in the 60s, so by the 1970s, when I was really fascinated with this stuff, it was, was not – hip wasn't part of pop culture you know so uh i grew up with a a very unusual interest at the time and it was kind of across the board from haunted sites to cryptids ufos and and anything weird and strange i was interested in it and uh by the time i was a teenager i started actively investigating never looked back quite honestly i've been exploring ever since then so i've been delving into this stuff since the 1970s and i've traveled all over the world, been very blessed to be able to pursue this passion of mine and uh, turn it into a career. Now, you've been all over the world, but your favorite place is Texas, right? (laughs) Oh, you're right about that. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So, uh, David is a prodigal son. He's returned to us. You can't have him. He belongs to us now. (laughs) He's one of the Borg. That's it. So, David, okay. So, first of all, I wanted to say something. Um, David is a prolific author, okay? People use that that, that term all the time, but he really is. 23 books, David? Uh, there's there's about 25 total. Some of the early stuff is out of print, but I think there's oh uh, somewhere between fi- around 15 or 16 that are currently in print. You can find those on my website and on Amazon. Yeah, and the latest one came out January. It was uh, Strange Intruders, I believe. No, Strange no, Intruders no, no, no. is an old one. No, no, no. You, you, you're you wrong, sir. Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, creatures. What is it called? It's called Creatures from the, La- from the Last Frontier. Monsters. Monsters the from Latin the Last Frontier. frontier. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and subtitle is Cryptids and Legends of Alaska. Of Alaska. Yep. And then just in that book is awesome. Uh, folks, we're going to be giving away an autographed copy of his book during the show on, on the show today. So what you're going to do is when we put the link onto the show onto our Facebook group, paranormal Roundtable, you just go on there and you leave a comment and we'll choose a winner. Just like we did last week, this week's judge will be Zane. We'll be choosing another and, uh, you could win an autographed copy of David Weatherly's book. 
the book, okay, man, it's got, there's so much to that book. Um, Alaska is a big place and I don't even know where to begin. I, I just, th- there were so many crazy things in the book, folks. A giant beaver <laughs> destroys the town. That was crazy. Okay. That, and then there was a six foot platypus. Now in the, in the book, you, you, you know, I was, I was sitting there going like, wait a minute, platypuses are not native to the North America at all. Now they are marsupials, right? And they're from Australia. That that was a that was kind of a one off sighting that was detailed uh, collected by Bobby Short. Yeah, and you know the series. So just just so people are clear, uh, this book there's there's actually sort of a series that's been running uh, on state cryptids. Uh, the first one I did was on Nevada. It's called Silver State Monsters, and uh, then I did Arizona, which was Copper State Monsters. Uh, you probably see a theme here using the state nicknames. And then the latest one, of course, is Monsters of the Last Frontier is on Alaska. And really my goal with the series was to sort of go old style, you know, like a bestiary or, or a, an old cryptozoology book. I, I really wanted people to feel like they were picking something up that, you know, had some some depth to it uh, rather than just a cursory overview of, of, hey, this is going on there. Uh, so, you know, I, I dug into, of course, I cover a lot of recent sightings at the time of the writing, but I also dig into folklore. I dig into native traditions. And that's always been kind of my route to investigate things and, and research anyway. I like to actually go to the locations. I, I've been to every state, so uh, I've been able to investigate sightings and encounters in every state. And when I really started digging into the files and, and realized, wow, there's a lot of stuff here. Uh, you know, Alaska, of course, was a little bit more challenging than the first two because there are so many sightings. I mean, Sasquatch encounters alone in Alaska would take up, you know, probably uh, two or three volumes. So uh, that part I certainly do give sort of an overview and, and, you know, hit the high points, so to speak. But there's other things that just a lot of people aren't aware of or they don't completely understand. And those things I try to incorporate in the book also. Uh, so, yeah, we get this weird one-off sighting of a, a platypus in Alaska, which is completely bizarre. Uh, we get stories of the Kushtaka which is a, a giant bipedal otter man. Uh, and that incidentally is what on, is what's on the cover. Uh, these, these covers are done by my artist. His name is Sam Sharon. He just does an amazing job. And uh, I, I think I challenge him each time because I, you know, typically for this series, we'll pick one of the more unusual cryptids or the cryptid that's maybe most associated with the state other than Sasquatch and have him put that on the cover. And when I threw this at him, you know, <laughs> I said, uh, all right, Sam, you know, this is a, uh, the Kushtika is a giant otter, bipedal otter person. <laughs> and, uh, you know. So he was, he was like, like, what am I going to draw? He was like, okay, <laughs> I'll have to think about this one. Uh, but man, he, he really comes through, you know, because he, of course, on the surface, I mean, that sounds so absurd, right? You know, an, a, a bipedal otter person. Uh, and, yeah, I haven't seen very many artistic depictions of the Kushtaka. So, you know, it's it's kind of right on the line where this could look really hokey or ridiculous, you know, or, or just too uh, whatever. But, man, he, he really captures it. That piece of artwork alone, I, I think, is worth the price of the book. And uh, I obviously I'm biased. But well, anyway, the Kushtaka is covered in the book. 
good book. I tell yeah, you right I mean, now. Um, I can tell. Did he also do the the cover for Strange Intruders? Because that's kind of what hooked me, and that's probably why I got confused. Because I had a question about that. Yeah, yeah he did that cover too. Yeah, that, that cover like stood out to me as I was going over your books. Um, you know, just the Slender Man on it, and all these other like cryptids, and like a weird like a amalgamation of like horror, basically. And it, yeah, that's why I got confused. Pretty good but, artwork on there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the concept for that, you know, I came up with this uh, idea that you know the book Strange Intruders uh, obviously is is a collection of different weird encounters that people have had and there's a theory that some of these things come from another dimension or you know another level of existence and when i was writing the book my concept for the cover was to show a a bunch of these figures coming through a a glass or a, a mirror or something you know and uh sort of breaking through so that's exactly what sam did you know i gave him the figures that i wanted on it and that that basic concept and that's what he came up with and yeah it was a beautiful job i that was the first piece of work he did for me the first artwork i can see why you kept him i mean it was and uh yeah it was it was really interesting because sam he was in the uk at the time he's a brit and uh he actually emailed me and he said you know i love i love your work i listen to you on uh the various shows and everything all the time and if you ever need a cover and you know it was the middle of the night i was working i was sitting here working on strange intruders when this popped up and i remember looking at his artwork which was you know some of it was kind of industrial and it was you know just different stuff didn't have anything really like i was had a concept of but i was like i don't know i I got i kind of got a good feeling about this guy so i threw this idea at him and uh, you see what he came up with it was mind-boggling well, keep him on the payroll for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's got some good and – and I think he did a good job at the Kushtakana. Folks, th- those of you listening at home, let me tell you something. It sounds silly, the Kushtakana, the whole the whole thing behind it, but it's not, okay? Um, these these uh, creatures and, – and David touches in, in depth in his book. I think he probably talk about them more than you do – them in Bigfoot pretty much more than any other of the cryptids because it is – a very uh, integral part of the traditions of the First Nations peoples up there, and they believe in it full full force. I mean, it's not like something that they take lightly, and it's not something they like to be picked at or made fun of for because it's just like any uh, natives, they're, they're going to hold to their traditions and their beliefs, and the Kushtaka play a very big part of that. Um, they're very menacing beings, and they are – Sort of a creature that walks between two worlds, sort of a spiritual, ethereal being, but it can manifest itself as a physical being, and they can do real physical harm. And, of course, I'm not going to get into a whole spiel about what they are. The book tells you in depth pretty much what they are and their traditions and their beliefs, but they they are a creature that's not to be messed with and are taken lightly. And a lot of the weird creatures that were in your book, another one that I, I thought was interesting was, the, the, if I could say this correctly, the Gona Cadet, part wolf, part orca. Right. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Like, because the, the orcas are known as the wolves of the sea, but a part wolf, part orca, those are my two favorite animals. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's awesome. You know, like, <laughs> that was a. Well, it sounds awesome until you meet it. I wouldn't want to, yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> want to be swimming around the water and see this thing coming. But, uh, you know, obviously. Um, and then you talk about, uh, the Port Chatham. Now I wanted to talk, I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Now you go and you talk a little more in depth than that too. In the book, Port Chatham. I mean, that, that, that was, that's something that's always fascinated me. Um, 
basically, I mean, just it was a settlement that ended up having to be abandoned. You want to talk talk about that briefly, uh, Dave? It, it was. It's a it, it's a really intriguing story. Um, <clears throat> this is a uh, it's a small little place. It's on the uh, Kenai Peninsula, and it's all it's a town that's also known as Portlock. Uh, so. You know, it was originally a a, can, a little cannery town in the early 20th century, and we're talking uh, the 1920s. There were, uh, you know, it was when it was kind of a town that was on the map because it had a post office that opened. Uh, but really, you know, this this place never grew very big. By 1940, it had I think 30 residents uh, at at kind of its peak. Uh, but here's the weird thing that happened with this place. Uh, the the stories say that suddenly everyone left the town, and there's there's a little bit of dispute about exactly what happened or how it how it happened. You know the the town never really grew to many people, so you know mostly we're talking about just a you know probably a handful of of families that lived there. But the mystery surrounding the town really starts in the 1930s because uh, there was a man who was a logger and he was using a piece of uh, machinery, uh, logging equipment uh, in the woods just outside of the town and he was killed. Now, the legend says that he was killed by the piece of, of logging equipment, which is simply too big for any human to move themselves. And as the stories grew, there were other things that uh, were talked about involving this this town. Purportedly, there were these large hairy creatures lurking outside in the woods around the town. And hunters would go up. They would find massive tracks. Uh, hunters would go and disappear in the woods around the town. Uh, now, we are talking about a, a remote area of Alaska. Uh, it's very difficult to access Port Chatham is. I, I know I haven't been there myself, unfortunately. I, I tried to get there the last time I was in Alaska, but as I said, it's a very difficult location to get to. Uh, I have talked to a number of people who've been there themselves. And, uh, you know, it's, it's even to this day, it's a very mysterious place. Uh, but what's interesting was that in the, uh, let's see, 1970s, uh, there was an article that, that ran in the Anchorage Daily News, and it was talking about the the town and about the fact that world, during World War II, there were these rumors of these creatures around the town, and that uh, they even interviewed an elder who had grown up in the town, and she was born in Port Chatham, but talks about the fact that her that her family they all left their houses and they just abandoned their, their homes and their school and everything. And she said that it was because of the, uh, Nantinook, which is essentially a hairy man. And uh, it's pretty amazing. I mean, this was, you know, mainstream news. Uh, I think it was, um, I remember correctly. It was one of the, uh, area mag uh, magazines, out of Anchorage again, might have been the Homer Tribune, actually, newspaper, uh, interviewed this woman and told this story. And, and she recalled being a child and going to school in Port Chatham and everything else and suddenly being told we're moving and, and all the villagers leaving because of the, the Nantinook. 
and the fact that it was killing people and basically terrorized this little town. That is crazy. <laughs> when I first uh, heard about this place, I mean, you know, of course I was young when I first read about it and it was just like something brief. And I can't remember where I read it. It might have been Fate Magazine or so. so I'm, I was always reading so many books uh, growing up. But I read about it and I thought, what a horrifying experience. You said, now you couldn't make it over there, David. That's because God loves you and didn't want you there. <laughs> He's like, you're not going to get there. That's just uh, the bottom line. And you now you said in the book that you can't access it by an ATV even. Like they said, well, you can get there by ATV, but you can't. Well, that's probably a good thing because that is probably the home of these creatures and they don't want anybody there. <laughs> and not to be confused with the Kushtaka because the, the, the First Nations are very specific about the hairy man or the big man is not the Kushtaka. The Kushtaka are a shape-shifting uh, type of otter-type beings, um, very, you know, hairy and just kind of, I guess, resemble an otter. Yeah, well, you know, that's something I try to make very clear in the book because in recent years especially, a lot of Sasquatch researchers have defaulted to this idea that the Kushtaka is a Sasquatch. And, you know, I, I've talked to um, natives in Alaska, and they are, are very adamant that it is not the same thing. And, in fact, you know, the tribes that talk about the Kushtaka uh, it's it's very clear to me just at, at a brief glance because they have specific names for the hairy man. There's a lot of different names for Sasquatch in Alaska because there are a lot of tribes there, uh, and and they each have their own you know identifier. But they are very uh, clear with the fact that it is not that a Kushtaka is not hairy man. That's not what they're talking about. And it was probably, Kushtaka was probably one of the most challenging things uh, that I've written about in some time because I, I really try my best to be respectful to native traditions. I, I always, you know, talk to native people and try to get their input when I can. And, um, you know, I, I try to be very respectful to their traditions and, at the same time, convey it you know, to the Western mind in a way that, that makes sense because we're talking about a completely different cultural viewpoint and concept. And, and you know, sometimes it's, it's important for people to remember that when they're reading about these things, that they need to step outside of their zone of comfort or, or what's normal for them and understand that, okay, it may sound absurd to you that we're talking about a six-foot-tall otter but you have to understand the, the concepts and the worldview that that came from and, and why and how that developed. And, you know, that alone will help you make sense of it to a degree. But it, it is a very complex thing to wrap your head around. And the, the Kushtaka stories are interwoven with the, the beliefs and the spirituality and everything else of the people, as well as the environment, because it's very much um, – uh, a product of a place that it, to some degree is otherworldly, you know, uh, Alaska, uh, Josh, you and I were talking about this earlier uh, off air, you know, it has this very compelling yet otherworldly quality. It's, it's a very unique place and you feel it when you go there to visit. Uh, so, you know, the, the people who have lived there for generations had developed these different views and, and concepts that, uh, are partially from their tribal beliefs, but partially from the environment. So the otter, you know, seems an odd choice to some degree, 
but at the same time, you have to understand that on a basic level, otters are seen as unusual there anyway because they can live in the water and they can live on land. So they're sort of creatures of two worlds just from that view. And when you add the other complexities and, and the simple understanding of otters, you know, they're very family oriented, they're very intelligent, and all of these things contributed to the the overall tapestry of the Kushtaka itself. And it is indeed, as you stated, a, a shapeshifter. The idea is that a human can become a Kushtaka. And uh, I'll just kind of leave it at that because that too is a very complex topic, how that happens. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you go in depth about it. The funny thing, one of the funny things you said in the book was you, you called the otters industrious. And I, I thought that that was pretty, that was pretty cool because otters are family oriented. They're cute and they're industrious. But if you took one and stretched it out to the size of a man and he was evil and had evil intentions, it would terrify you um, because that would be scary. If I walked outside right now to go to my truck and I saw a six foot tall otter thing coming toward me, I would probably do something really bad in my pants. Otter. I mean, if I went outside and I saw a six foot tall, cute little bunny, I'd be like, <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's six foot tall and it's yeah. shaped like a man. It's going to be kind of, yeah, it's going to scare you. So yeah, but the otter the otter uh, can also be they're carnivorous and they can be uh, vicious too by the same token. So I mean, uh, no, that was, that leads me into my next uh, question. I was going to ask you, David, um, and this is just out of curiosity. The, the the goat man now here in Texas we get stories of goat man, and you don't talk about that in the book because there there's not a goat man running around in Alaska that anybody's seeing that we know of. But the, the otter man does a lot of the same things that the goat man does, as far as like uh, communicate the way it communicates and and shape shifts and pretends to be somebody else. I've gotten stories of the goat man uh, doing and saying like somebody thinks that it's somebody that they know. And mimicking, right. mimicking, yes, yes. Yes, and you find a lot of the same things with uh, the Kushtaka stories in Alaska. Now, sometimes that's because maybe they are a relative who was lost in the wilderness or something, and, and they become a Kushtaka. A Kushtaka, yeah, which is a horrible fate. It's like the natives live in fear of becoming uh, one of these things. You don't, It's not an existence you want to, to have. Uh, one of the things I was going to point out, folks, is, David, you're, you're actually a very nice guy. And I don't just say that because you're on the show right now. I'm being honest because there was a thread on Facebook where someone was kind of like correcting you and being very, uh, what I thought was kind of condescending and, and, and saying, well, it's not necessarily rude, but correcting David and saying, oh, you're not saying the saying it right. You're not pronouncing it or spelling it correctly. And David didn't respond and go, well, read the book and you'll know, blah, blah, blah. But when I read that, I thought, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's not very nice. But when I read the book, you clearly, <laughs> in the book, you say <laughs> that there are different pronunciations and different spellings depending on the First Nations people that, you know, now this person wasn't a First Nations person, but they claimed to be the authority on it. And David was just like, okay, well, that's fine. And you just let the water roll off your back where I would have been, why don't you read the book? Because <laughs> that's the kind of person I am. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not you. And I'm not, you know, polite. So I said something to Ken about it. And Ken was like, well, David's such a nice guy. He's not going to say anything, you know. And I was like, well, I guess I won't either because I didn't want to start nothing because I was going to say, why don't you read the book, you know. <laughs> but David, David just kind of like, well, you know, it's it's cool, whatever, you know. But, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll well, know one day. Well, you don't to... win an argument with someone like that. So, you know, 
part of it is is intelligence on my part, just saying, you know, why why waste the time and energy? <laughs> so David's <laughs> calling me stupid, folks. Really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess in that <laughs> respect, I probably am because I probably would have said something back and be like, you know, on page forty, whatever, you read the book, you know, like I probably would have said something. But the point is that you're a very nice guy and you're smart <laughs> enough to to avoid the the, the conflict and you didn't. Uh, sit there and try to tell people, you know, well, it's a good book if you read it, you know, because that would have been my impulse. Right. But uh, I guess that's why I'm not a great author because <laughs> I don't have that. But uh, anyways, hey, I, I have cool people like you who support my work and go on air and say this is a great book. So, well, there you, you know, go. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it does. You you and Ken and Lyle and, and Nick, uh, you all live in Texas. I think that's awesome. Uh, four of my favorite authors, Linda, you know, and, and Lon ran round out my others, but uh it's I, I forgive them for not living in Texas, but you know. Well you know who else is in uh Texas uh or original? Uh the expanded perspective guys. Oh, the guys up in expanded perspective they do the show yeah. up in Fort Worth, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's a lot of us down here doing paranormal cryptid stuff you know and uh you know it's not just a bunch of cows down here we're, we're doing other stuff too slowly but surely we got electricity and running water last week so <laughs> we'll yeah. see what happens finally got off my horse and i bought a tesla <laughs> these <laughs> newfangled flying machines up and down the skies but uh, another one i wanted to t- touch on about the book and this is pretty cool um you talked about this creature that was that was a walrus dog um which was kind of which was kind of odd now I had a story that I talked about um, on my show, I believe, or it might have been on Vic's show. I don't know. I can't remember. I talked about it. It was a, a buddy of mine. Now, he's got a funny nickname. We call him Starscream, and there's a reason for that. It, it's from the Transformers cartoon. But but uh, anyways, when he worked for me, he always wanted to be the boss, and so we started calling him that. Now his nickname is just Scream. We call him Scream, but he lives up in, up in Fort Worth, too, or up in Dallas. And uh, he was down on the coast a few years ago. And he came down for my birthday, uh, and so he was telling my wife a crazy story. When he was visiting, uh, I think he said he was down in Padre Island, or South Padre Island, uh, this thing, he saw this weird-looking thing that had legs like a like a dog. I mean, it was dark. He said it was dark, and he was on the beach, and, and him and his girlfriend, this, this thing, were watching, and this thing came out onto the land, and was kind of rooting around and sniffing on the beach. And he's like, dude, it wasn't a seal, but it had legs like a do- almost like a dog, but real short, stubby legs. Now, Tony, I know you remember this. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he told that story, and I thought, Scream, you're drunk. And he goes, no. He goes, uh, he was very adamant. I, I, he, he goes, I like, know what I saw. You know, he goes, and this thing was black. And I said, well, it was dark. He goes, well, I shined a light at it. And he goes, and it was the weirdest looking thing. It almost looked like a dog, but it had like no fur. Like it was sleek. And then he said that it turned and ran back into the water and disappeared. And he said that if he had to to, to put a, a finger on it, it was like a cl- cross between a reptile and a dog. And and when when I read your book and I read the walrus dog, my wife was like, "Honey, look at this," you know, because she was going over it, you know, whatever. And I hadn't started reading it at that point actually. And she was telling me this: there's some pretty cool stuff in there. She's kind of skimming through it and. I said, well, I need to read it then, you know? And so when I got to that part, I thought that's really weird because uh, there's even a drawing, like you have drawings throughout the book, like, you know, at the beginning of a lot of the chapters, there's drawings. Um, so, but yeah. It, yeah it, those, uh, you know, those, those are actually vintage illustrations uh, that get put in that, you know, it's, it's amazing what, you know, some of these really antique um, 
illustrations that were done sometimes in reflection of, you know, native stories and things like that. And, and you're talking about dog legends. There's some really curious things that come up in Alaska with canids because there is the, there's the, uh, Kilut, which is, uh, said to be a, it's an evil spirit that takes the form of a black dog, but it's almost completely hairless. And the curious thing about it is that it's said that its tracks automatically vanish. So it prowls around, it'll stalk travelers, but it can never be tracked because the, the tracks won't stay down. Uh, there's another one that is, uh, oh, the, the Adlet, which is sort of, you first heard of it, somebody told me it was a, a werewolf, but when I really dug in and found out about the legends, it's not at all. It's, it's actually a creature that is uh, human on the upper part of the body, but from the, the waist down is a dog. Ooh. So it's sort of a, it gets into the range of a satyr or something almost, but it's, it's canid instead. And uh, one of the most interesting things I found about dogs in Alaska was that they are one of the things that purportedly protects people from the Kushtaka. That was something I wanted to touch on with you too. I was reading a book uh, not too long ago, and if anybody wants to read it, it's called Legends of the Fire Spirits. It's a pretty good book, but I've heard this before. I worked with Arabs and Persians and <clears throat> a lot of different people, Kurds, over the years. I've I've been around a lot of different types of, uh, of, of ethnic people from the Middle, Middle East, Mediterranean area. Um, very similar one of my buddies is actually uh, Turkish. He, he runs a hotel here in Austin. And one of the things that, that we were talking about was there was a, a, a Jinn legend. And it was about a, one called the Nazgul or Gula or Guela, depending on which region you're from. Now, these things, the, the legends of the Guela, Nogola, whatever, they come, they go all the way from like Tunisia, North Africa, all the way to like Syria. And so, that, but th they're all the same. They're kind of like a, a ghoul. Uh, it's a jinn. It's with their their version of like a demon in the Middle East, and um, they they travel uh, in the desert and they look for victims and they they eat people is what they are. They're people eaters. But one of the things that the Nagula is afraid of is a is a wolf. They are they're terrified of wolves, and supposedly there is a type of wolf that hunts them specifically, depending on what region you talk to somebody about. Um, a, f a friend of mine from Lebanon told me that the story that they have is this, this wolf actually eats the, the ghoul and, and their mortal enemies. And it's the only thing that the ghoul is the, that is a, this gin is afraid of. And, but the legend is that this, uh, wolf, this, it's a specific type of wolf and the wolf itself can also be a shapeshifter. And some, some of the legends talk about these wolves running around, uh, like a man. They don't actually say they walk on two legs. They just say that they move about as a man, which makes you wonder, is it a man pretending, you know, like is it a shapeshifter? So it gets really kind of weird. And when I was reading that part of the book, I thought, oh, that's crazy because that's a thread. That's one that I've picked up, you know, and I was recommended by a friend of mine that's Persian to uh, read, read that book, Legends of the Fire Spirit. So it is a good book, uh, David, if you ever want to check it out. It's got the guy that wrote it, like he did a very good job of- I've of, read it. 
Oh, I'm sure <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, Simpsons did it, but anyway. It's, yeah. it's a great book. I, I've delved pretty extensively into the gin stuff. And uh, in fact, there's a chapter on them in Strange Intruders. Yeah, and I haven't read Strange Intruders. That's one of them I hadn't read. So, But uh, yeah, def- definitely looking forward to reading that one too. Um, but I did read Black Eyed Kids, and that one was an awesome book too. We'll get into that in a little bit, folks. Um, so anyway... That was another question I had. So you, so you know all about that, and folks at home, I just was throwing that out there. Uh, obviously, David, you know what a dogman is. A lot of people don't um, because the term is, you know, it hasn't been around a long time. I mean, I guess it has, but not in the mainstream as it is now. But uh, what about legends of dogman in, in Alaska or just in general? What is your thought on this particular cryptid? Yeah, you don't really find that in Alaska. Um, you know, obviously a lot of water-based cryptids because there's so much water in Alaska, you know, so many uh, bodies of fresh water plus the ocean, of course, borders a good portion of the state. But uh, other than the few canine legends we we address, there's really not a whole lot like that in Alaska. And the dogman itself is pretty intriguing, you know. This term, as you said, is not that old, really. And uh, I'm not sure. I tried to figure out at one point, I think it might have been Ken and I talking about this, you know, the origin of this dogman phrase. And uh, because I know a lot of people use it now to sort of distinguish uh, and, and get away from the term werewolf, which you know, so many people now associate with the movies, right? You say werewolf, and what's the first thing people think of? You know, it's yeah, the howling, the howling, or you know, launching here, American Werewolf in London, whatever you know. But really, you know, werewolf lore, uh, something I find very, very fascinating. And you know, there's a lot of werewolf lore in early America. Uh, that I've I've been collecting over the last few years that uh, just forgotten pieces from here and there uh, that were people who immigrated here in the in the early days of settlement and they brought their traditions you know whether they came from France or Germany or wherever and they were seeing these creatures and they identified them as werewolves uh, so you know some of these tidbits are just fascinating one one of my favorites is there was a incident I, I put this on the website there's an article on it um if somebody's interested in reading it but essentially there was a point in pennsylvania when timber carts were being uh, plagued by werewolves they were being attacked and the pennsylvania dutch who were running the carts painted hex signs on the wool on the uh wheels to try to deter these wolf creatures from attacking the timber wagons coming down the mountain. So, you know, I, I think that this, this dogman stuff, it's one of those things that, you know, to a certain degree, you just don't know what to think of as an investigator, because at this point there are enough of these cases to make it really, really intriguing. And at the same time, you have to examine, you know, why so many now, you know, why the gaps in, in time where we had so many, uh, you know, because the last few years, dozens, of, you know, hundreds of these things have cropped up around the country, uh, whereas previous years, we just really didn't have that. You know, how, how many do you find from, you know, the 70s uh, or whatever, you know, the 60s, uh, a few here and there that are sporadic. And those are interesting, too. So 
there's a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions about the dog, man. I, I think that sometimes it's people seeing maybe a, a Sasquatch or, you know, something like that. Uh, obviously on other occasions, it very clearly has canid features, you know, when they have pointy ears that are sticking up and a long sn snout, then, uh, that's a whole different question. Yeah, it's obviously not a Sasquatch. So I, I don't know. I, I think it, I'm intrigued by all of this stuff. So I find the accounts really fascinating. Do you have any theories on why there's not a lot of accounts in uh, Alaska or do you have any, like, have you found new or just like any theories? Well, you know, as, as far as Alaska goes, I mean, part of it possibly because of the climate, you know, even though, even though these things are found in, in cold climates, um, because, you know, a lot of sightings, obviously, from Wisconsin and Michigan and areas like that. Uh, Alaska is very unique. It's a very different climate. And, you know, maybe they are up there. There's so much wilderness in Alaska that uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me <laughs> for a whole range of creatures that we're not aware of to actually be living up there. Uh, but if we really look at werewolf lore in general, then it seems to be, uh, and you know, werewolf slash dogman. Uh, then it, it really seems to be much more connected to human civilization somehow, uh, particularly uh, Western civilization. So when you factor in that a lot of Alaska is still uh, native residents, uh, then, you know, maybe they just uh, haven't immigrated there, so to speak, at this point, at least in any significance uh, that people are reporting them or, or even comfortable reporting them, you know. Uh, but it, it's really fascinating to look at shapeshifter legends in general around the world. And you see that there are regional connections to how these things are portrayed or how they're perceived. Uh, so we go to the Southwest. Uh, something else I've looked at extensively is a skinwalker. And, you know, the skinwalkers tend to be, um, you know, coyote or they can take other forms. But when you look at their transformations, it's very connected to the native peoples of the region. Uh, we go to Alaska, obviously, we already talked about the Kushtaka, and they've connected it to the otter. Uh, so werewolf lore, a lot of the that comes out of Europe originally. You know, areas like France and, and Germany, wolves were a very terrifying thing at one point in, in human civilization. So, uh, you know, it's kind of to a degree, I guess, represents the wild, the untamed, the, the, uh, the unknown to a degree. And these shape-shifting legends seem to blend in very deftly with those human concerns and human concepts. So we, we certainly have to consider that and how it melds into the folklore of the people and how they translate and perceive what's happening. doesn't mean these things aren't real to some degree, but I, I think the door is wide open as to exactly what they can be because uh, that, that, and I know I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole here, but, you know, we have to start looking at concepts of uh, tulpas and, and other manifestations and consider how much are we co-creating some of these things into existence. That's awesome that you touched on that because that is one of my theories. I believe that tulpa is a very, um, <clears throat> Yeah, that's a, I don't know how, man, that, that is, uh, yeah, the rabbit hole, like you said. I, I have a theory about that. The Slenderman chapter in Strange Intruders, you know, people ask me why I put Slenderman in that book because 
the other creatures that are in the book, you know, they're, they're physical manifestations that people are seeing. And the creepy thing is that Slender Man is two at this point. And it's, it's interesting because I was doing a, a lecture tour on tulpas the year that, uh, the Wisconsin case happened with the two girls who, who tried to murder their classmate. And uh, for a year prior to that, I'd done a lecture tour about tulpas. And one of the things I warned people about was the Slender Man. And I said, look, this is, you know, this is something that obviously we know the origins of the Slender Man. It began, as, you know, as part of an Internet contest. But the thing is, is that when they launched that contest, their idea was to create something that people would believe was real. Uh, if you go back and I, and it's very tedious, but when I, I wrote that piece on the Slender Man, I, I went back and read that entire thread, which is, oh my God, I don't know how many entries. Uh, but the, the concept was, let's create a, a paranormal themed image that we can make go viral on the internet that people will believe is real. So they did that. And it's really fascinating to read through and, and you'll see that the Slender Man took over the thread, the idea of it. Other people contributed. And eventually what happened was people independent uh, who had no idea about that thread started independently reporting encounters with what they described as the Slender Man figure. So, you know, I, I think that that was a, it's a very interesting experiment in a way, but I think it is a manifestation. It's it's a tulpa that was created through the collective consciousness because for the first time, something like that was sent out utilizing social media, you know, immediately around the world through whatever, Facebook, Twitter, whatever people became aware to some degree of the Slender Man and it became implanted in people's consciousness. And and what does that do, you know, when, when thousands upon thousands of people believe this thing is out there? Yeah, th there was a, an experiment that was done. Now, you said the first time in social media, but there was an experiment that was done in a college. Do, do you want to expound on that? And I'm asking you to expound on it because I don't know the name of the college and I can't remember when it happened. <laughs> Are you talking about the Philip experiment? There you go. Yeah, it's Philip. Yeah. Okay, because I'm sitting yeah, here going so like, was, yeah. yeah, that was pre-social media, uh, but that was that yeah. was a, that was actually uh, developed out of spiritualist concepts, and the idea was was done by a group in Canada, and their idea was to create a historical figure. That wasn't real, but to give him a backstory, to give him, uh, to put details of his life in there and to proceed to try to communicate with him. So they, uh, you know, considering that we're talking about spiritualism at the time, the method was, you know, table tapping and, and these types of, of different things, uh, Ouija boards and so forth. So, um, they developed this character. Uh, they put some historical inaccuracies in uh, intentionally uh, so that they could distinguish whether they were getting Philip or some other spirit, you know, that was coming in trying, you know, possibly with the same name or something. And uh, they went through a series of experiments where they finally uh, began receiving communication from Philip. Now, it took a strange turn because the spirit, Philip, began to tell them things uh, about themselves that no one else in the group knew. So he was revealing secrets. 
and you know it's uh it really was an experiment essentially to create a tulpa although they only carried it so far you know they they stopped uh, but by the time they got into the late phases of this experiment they were having things like uh, the the table levitating and other weird manifestations and you know it was uh, by all accounts very successful but again a fabricated entity that somehow became real to a certain degree. That is what's scary is that, you know, they started out making this, you know, whatever make believe and it turned into something real. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, speaking of, you know, Tulpas and, you know, the Slender Man and things like Creepypasta, one of the, you know, one of our cryptids that we do cover uh, quite a few times on the show is a rake. Which is also founded on creepy. It started. Well, on, we don't know what it is. Well, I mean, the name yeah. Rake started on. We creepy, get descriptions, of, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the actual creature itself is just very bizarre. It's like this transparent, sometimes like uh, milky white or transparent, very skinny, creepy looking. Walks like weird on either like a crab or has its like joints messing around. Yeah, it can and, move itself in different ways. Yeah, and um, the, well, I was just wondering what you thought about that. And do you think it's a similar thing to Slenderman, where enough people uh, believed in it that it started people, other people started to see Thinking it. Thinking it up. Yeah. I, I think so. And, and you know, there's always this case, especially with modern social media, where people, you, you know, unfortunately the attention span is so short amongst uh, many people now, and particularly the younger generation. So, yeah. you know, if, if it's not in 120 characters or less, they, they might not know about it. And, you know, many of these people, they just hear something, they hear an idea, you know, they hear, Oh, my, my friend's friend saw the rake, you know, all oh, that thing's so creepy. And, you know, there's a, this automatic is, assumption uh, that uh, this thing is real, that there's something like this out there. And yeah, who knows? I, I think that, Again, with the modern ability to communicate around the world, we've got different things to consider in terms of our collective consciousness and how we are co-creating these things into existence. And you know, to a degree, this is not new. We were talking about the jinn earlier, and you have to consider that a lot of people don't realize that the the uh, Muslim faith, you know, the, the Islamic faith states that one of the tenets is that uh, anything is written that's written in the holy books must be believed. Well, the holy books talk about the jinn. Uh, therefore, if you're a good Muslim, then you believe in the jinn. Now, you know, there are different degrees of that. I, I, I know uh, Muslims and the greater percentage of them won't talk about the jinn because it's viewed as has bad luck to even to even say the name. You know, you'll you'll clear the room usually of any people of that faith. But uh, at the same time, you know, there's there's a certain percentage of them who say, well, yes, we do believe in them, but they're they're spiritual beings. You know, we don't have to worry about. You know, they're they're at a different you know their level of existence, so we don't have to worry about them. But uh, my point there in, in, as opposed to rambling my point is is that uh you know how many muslims are in the world now that's the fastest growing religion in the world and bear in mind that every one of them to some degree or other believes in the existence of the jinn yeah and you're right about that a lot of them won't talk about it but um they believe 
that like and it's not it's not a uh, Muslim belief per se. It is a regional belief that in the Arabs when they were on their conquest, um, they spread Islam, you know, like from North Africa all the way to, you know, China. And so like, you know, they, that's how everyone became Muslim and, and their beliefs, like they're all kind of intertwined and it goes from, from those regions. Uh, th- that's the, the, the belief in, in those creatures or whatever those entities. And that's how it spread to be Islamic, but it's not necessarily an Islamic belief. It predates it. Like, I mean, even the Zoroastrians, they believed in these, these, uh, creatures. Now they explain it in Islam a little differently. Um, of course there was this, this figure that was, you know, he was one and he didn't bow down Iblis. He didn't bow down to man. And that's their, but that's right. The, the Muslims actually identify them as jinn, and that's, that's where the tradition that's where that aspect of the tradition comes from and how it became a part of their uh, belief systems. And, it, and there's some correlations, you know, you can see some similarities between that and the Christian idea of fallen angels, but there really is a, a you know, there are some major differences. And uh, as you started to say, I know I interrupted you, but as you started to say, uh, the, the original belief amongst the uh, Islamic faith is that the jinn refused to bow down to the superiority of man. So Allah basically exiled them. Uh, but it, it's really tricky when you start reading those early texts. I, I've been through a lot of that stuff. And, you know, they're they're banished, but not really. So they're here, uh, but they just don't exist on the same level that we do. And, it, and that gets really fascinating because we're talking about an early concept of uh, dimensional, ex- other dimensional existence. So, you know, it really sounds like, okay, they're banished from this earthly plane, but they're still here amongst us. Yeah. They live in, a, in an intermediate place and exactly. Yeah. And th- they're supposedly in between us and the realm of angels. Well, right. and it's like supposedly like a, a right angle from a right angle or something. And it's the fourth mm-hmm. dimension. Um, I know it talks about the green mountains and how they, it's called the, uh, the calf or the cough or cough, whatever. And I know that it talks about how they actually have neighbors, but it never really yes. postulates on like what those, it doesn't expound upon what those neighbors are. I mean, you can postulate all day long on what they are, but it's like, it's weird. It talks about them having neighbors. And I've always often wondered if some of these, um, what people would call like the Nephilim, you know, maybe that was their neighbors because I know that there were rebellious angels and we're getting all into this biblical stuff here. Whether you believe it or not, I mean, it's it, it's the, the the belief, the stories are that there were these rebellious angels, but then there were also a group of watchers, two hundred watchers called, you That's know, right. yeah, the, and they were the fallen angels, and they were the ones that were actually put up on the earth to watch uh, for out for the bad guys that had, that had rebelled and to keep yes. us safe, and instead they did the the, the opposite. And uh, they kind of fell in with, you know, oh, we're gods, which I mean, I think is like Zeus and Thor and all that. That's where that comes from. And they interbred. And then, of course, there's all these like uh, different creatures. Now, when I was reading your book about the Alaska thing, one of the things I found interesting was the idea of the god bear, the uh, the ten-legged bear. And you're, and you're sitting there reading that and you're going like, okay, wow, that's kind of fantastical. Now, David never says, this is the truth. This is a real bear that lived. No, you just put it out there that this is some of the beliefs that, these, that the natives had. But when you think about it, if you look at it from a biblical perspective or even a, a Quranic perspective or however you want to say it in, in any of these religions, um, 
yeah, you, you go back to the story of the Nephilim and, and, and you can see that, that these angels pollute, these uh, fallen angels polluted uh, everything. So there could be something that was like that if you go by that uh, logic in the book of Enoch. Now, me personally, I do believe that there is a lot of truth in the book of Enoch. And I have had many arguments with many people because I am a study, I'm a student of religion and a student of, uh, you know, history. D- history for sure. Tony knows I got a huge library of books. Um, and I just, I read a lot about, um, people and culture, you know, and, and, and it's just because I'm fascinated by everyone else's culture and belief and what they think, what they believe. I've been fortunate to work with a lot of people from around the world and I've traveled too. I haven't been to all 50 states, not like David. I, I, I have not been to the original 13, uh, except for Pennsylvania. I went to Pennsylvania as far up and then the other, there's 14 states up there I haven't been to, but everywhere else I've been. And I've spent some time in different places and you meet a lot of different people. And when you travel, you meet different people. Um, Went to Athens when I was a kid with my dad. And, uh, you know, so my dad was one of those dads that was like, oh, you want to go and look at all this? Other? Okay, bye. Here, get on the train, you know. <laughs> and so he was he was a very, um, like, let, let, you know, trust your kid, you know, that, that's not going to, you know, makes you tough, I guess. So he just, you know, I, went, I had a chaperone and and that barely spoke English, and I got to go and check out all these crazy things and stuff. When I was a kid, it was fascinating to me. The first book I read um, historical person was Alexander the Great. And I started with him. It just kind of went all the way up to World War II. And over the years, you know, I've just been, that's been fascinating to me. And I think that uh, if you learn history in particular, you will kind of get a sense of what's going on now. But the problem is, like you said, the attention span is so small that people don't have time for that. They don't want to mess with that. Well, they do, but they don't want to make time for it. Now, if you don't know history, you're not going to know what's going on now. You're not going to know how we got to this point where we're at right now. And I was, uh, have mentioned that book many times to people like, you know, cause I thought that they had a wealth of information about what we're talking about, the legends of the fire spirits. And you were the only one who has said, yeah, I've read that book. And that's, that's cool. Um, I think the other one I corresponded with at one point was Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Like she had written a book about, uh, um, uh, angels and demons. And of course, she, Rosemary she, was a very good friend of mine. Oh man. That, that was a, we, yeah, we were very close and that was a big loss, man. I'll uh, tell you what, last year. she was a giant. I mean, it was in her book. I talked about, uh, a very odd experience that happened to me. And, and one of her books was sitting on my coffee table and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a book that she, one of the, she wrote one about angels and one about demons. And it was like an encyclopedia of them and had their names and everything, what they did and what they represented. Um, very, very informative. And she was very, uh, she was amazing. I, I liked her as an author. Um, just a very good person, but, uh, yeah, it, it's sad uh, that that part's really sad, but she was like, folks, if you go and you want to read, about some of these things, like she was a good author. And um, I know there was another book that I had read. I think she wrote, and I'm not 100%. I think it was about fairies. I want to say that was her. And and I, that one was very informative too. And I, th- I think that what, what these things are, like the fairies, that, that they're in the, um, the region of like Great Britain and France. I think that each area has its own uh, – type of, I guess what the, the Arabs would call jinn. They, the, the ones from their region where they're from, they call them the jinn, but these other ones in other regions, they are called fairies or fey, you know, depending on what region you're in. And I think that each area has its own 
uh, spirits that kind of like, that's where they're at. It's like, like on your body, you know, you have germs and, and it's like, that's where they're at. And if something else comes, then it's like, this is my spot and they don't like it, you know? And so that's kind of what these things are. They inhabit certain areas. And so when you go into an area and it's like, oh, this place is haunted, this place is this, this place is that. Well, it probably is. And it's probably from these entities. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the fallen and, and their offspring, because it says that they were, they were cast out. And when, when the flood came and they were wiped out, that they ended up being evil spirits and that they were going to be called evil spirits for all time. Now that, that doesn't mean that, that they're, that the, that the rebellious angels aren't around because they are too. Um, one of the fascinating passages in the book of Job, when God talks to to Lucifer and he asks him, where hath thou been? It always gave me the creeps when he said, I've been walking to and fro upon and within the earth. <laughs> and I always <laughs> thought he was walking around on the earth. Like that really, even as a kid, I was just like, whoa, wait, what? Like, what was that? Like, so this dude was walking around on the earth and walking in the earth. And, and so I always use that kind of as a, as a reason not to go into caves and stuff. <laughs> And I was like a very weird child. I was precocious, but I was also weird. And, and I was just like, nah, man, that just made me think like, okay, so the devil literally, as we know of is the devil in the Christian religion is Lucifer. He's the main devil, I guess. Uh, but it's like, he was just walking around with earthly feet. I mean, it, it's terrifying when you think about it, but I mean, obviously the Nephilim were born of, of, of human women. So, if you believe, like I believe, that these things can manifest themselves from physical, from spiritual into physical, and they can interact with people in a, in a in a physical way, and it's very scary. And then when you talk about them having children, which I'm going to do a show eventually, folks, about the Nephilim. Everybody's just clamoring for that, and I have somebody that's that's just researched the heck out of it. And she's pretty amazing, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. You get into like what they, what they did, how they polluted the earth with everything. You can imagine they, they bred with all these different animals and different things. Now I, I I've often wondered, and now you can expound on this, David, if you think this is, uh, worth it. But, uh, I've often wondered if them breeding with these was more of an animal husbandry. Like if maybe they took genes cause they had the technology, and they created like these goat men, satyr type creatures. They created these wolf creatures. They created all these different and, and these chimeric kind of creatures that people are seeing. And, 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 you know, the otter man, you know, like, uh, you talk about in your book in the Alaska uh, book, it, another thing you talked about the battle between the, the tail men and the natives, right? Like, that is a theme that comes up over and over again. The Utes and the Cherokee have, uh, stories like that too, where they fought like red haired giants and they burned them out in a cave, you know, um, the same thing with the tail men, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole story, but it, it's like, there were these men that had tail, these long tails and they were eventually, uh, they got into a fight with the natives. And so, it, it, you know, you start to wonder like these, uh, giants, these, uh, tail men, you know, like in the book, these different types of chimeric creatures, the goat man, all these different types of entities. Are they the Nephilim? Are they from the fallen? Is that what we're dealing with? Are they the remnants of it? Are they the manifestations of their evil spirits turning physical? And then, you know, are they using portals? I mean, what, what, what is your thought on that, David? Well, there's uh 
there's there's kind of a whole lot of questions within that, <laughs> you know, uh, within what you were talking about. But you know, first of all, yeah, this concept uh, or this these stories about these battles that native people have had with giants, uh, as they're often termed, it's it's very fascinating thing. Now, I've been in Lovelock Cave. Uh, there's a whole section in the Nevada book about the the battle that the Utes had with the red-haired giants, and uh, it, it's it's kind of chilly. I mean, I, I stood and listened to a native elder tell me that story himself personally. Uh, so you know, kind of hearing it directly from a source at the time it was fascinating. And what's interesting about that story is that uh, there's a similar tale in Idaho along the Snake River. Um, I later found a story in Arizona, just a small snippet of uh, natives down there having a similar fight uh, with giants. And then, of course, when I was researching the Alaska book, I, I discovered this story about the tailmen. And it's it's really the, the whole thing is just kind of mind boggling to a certain degree. I was. Uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum and I were talking about this and this idea that, you know, is it a cultural memory? Uh, but if so, why is it so universal almost? I mean, we're talking about a, a tribe in Alaska that has a version of it and a tribe in, in you know, southern Arizona. I mean, those, you can't get much more extreme than that in terms of climate and, and lifestyle and everything else. So, that in itself is is pretty stunning and you really do you find a lot of these stories all over the world uh, of course there's a famous story of of david's battle with goliath uh you know you find giant tales uh, all over the place and uh, you equally do find stories of shapeshifters you find stories of uh the wee folk the little people you know the gentry that go by all different names uh but in different regions of the world, different places around the world, you find these stories. Now, one of the things that's always really intrigued me is that uh, I, I've taught to Native tradition teachers all over the world and heard these stories of whatever the, the race was they're talking about, you know, be it elves or, or gnomes or whatever. And, you know, consistently you hear this um idea that yes they were here they were physically here living with us uh with humans and something happened now you know sometimes it, it depends on the tradition sometimes it's a battle between humans and, and these creatures uh sometimes it's something else that happens but uh there's consistently this idea that they left or they were banished now when they leave they often you know, they depart through a hole in the earth or a shimmering doorway or, or something. And, you know, we're talking about a portal. Uh, this, some of this stuff, if you strip it down and you just listen to the folk tales, uh, even 20 years ago, you could tell these things. And most people, even researchers in the field would say, yeah, but that's just, that's just mythology. That's just myth. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, we have to go back and, and respect these early stories. And understand them, whether it's coming from the lips of a native elder or whether it's coming from a, a book of the Bible, 
we have to understand that, you know, this stuff is all not all just fabricated out, out of, you know, thin air just to entertain someone at the time. Yeah, it has to come from somewhere. It, it came from some sources. It's documented for a very particular reason. And I find that a lot of Native traditions, uh, and I use that term broadly, not just in uh, the Americas, but also in, in Europe and other regions of the world, usually distinguish very clearly between uh, talking about something that is a, a spirit and is in spirit form and something that they're saying is real and tangible and is something that humans interact with or did interact with. And, you know, I, I think uh, I, I've always tried to pay a lot of attention to that. I You know, when I started in this field, uh, there weren't any television shows on talking about ghosts or UFOs or any of this stuff, you know, that in search of came along in the seventies. But, you know, other than that, I mean, this stuff, it, it just, you, you know, this is the era of PG pre Google, you know, you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't pull up a, a screen and, and Google, you know, what's a tulpa. So, you know, I really buried myself in books and, and read extensively, be it religion or shamanism or, or the paranormal, you know, the supernatural, all the mythologies and all these different things. And, and, uh, I think that, you know, for me, that's been an important grounding and aspect of how I've uh, proceeded into the field with an understanding that uh, I, I personally think that it's important to look at the traditions, the folklore, the beliefs of the region that you're investigating, because there are going to be clues there that that traditional lore is going to tell you something. Uh, you know, if they're talking about pixies, there's a reason for it. And you really delve in below the surface and begin to understand that uh, we're talking about a, a rich tradition that goes back way, way back, you know, to, to the oral traditions of the people there. And there is some kind of connection to contemporary manifestations. I, I really believe that. Uh, so, you know, having that foundation in, in the history and, and having that knowledge can help us understand and give us a different perspective for what's happening today. And it, it's pretty fascinating to me that in modern times, uh, you know, the past 10 or 15 years, some of these things that I, I was talking about a long time ago and, and you know, uh, other people were talking about at the time were seen as silly, but now quantum scientists are saying, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, there's 13 other levels of existence. We don't know what's there or how to get there, but we know they're there. Well, duh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Traditions around the world have been talking about this for ages. You know, where, you know, this is where these other beings went. They left and they went to some other dimension. You know, the same thing is true. You're talking about these weird stories of hybrids. You know, go out and start telling somebody about a, a satyr, you know, a goat man or something like that. And they'll look at you like you're nuts. Meanwhile, uh, you know, in another county somewhere, some scientist is creating a goat that can spin spider webs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, what is that? It's genetic manipulation. And, you know, once again, we have to consider, okay, well, the traditional lore says this. You know, why were they saying this? How do these things happen? So, yeah, completely possible that some kind of weird uh, early genetic manipulation was going on that accounts for some of these ancient stories, be they biblical or uh, folkloric or whatnot.